Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Ritual Art. Political, Social, and Religious Subversion in the Dramatic Works of William Butler Yeats and Aleister Crowley. By Dr. Amy Clanton, University of South Florida, Tampa. The ritual plays of William Butler Yeats and Aleister Crowley question the dominant political, social, and religious values of their time, contravening traditional ideas of ritual as a conservative social force. This study analyzes Yeats's Celtic Mysteries rituals and Crowley's Rites of Eleusis according to changing scholarly theories of ritual. Even though William Butler Yeats expressed a lifelong interest in the occult, he is far better known for his literary accomplishments than his esoteric pursuits. The opposite can be said for his contemporary, the famous or notorious occultist and writer Aleister Crowley. Despite the mutual animosity engendered by their personality differences, their spiritual and literary interests were remarkably similar. Each man sought to create religious rituals through his art. Note, their dislike for each other was mutual. Yeats called Crowley, quote, a quite unspeakable person. Whereas Crowley in his novel Moonchild characterizes his fictional Yeats, whom he calls Gates, as an evil magician. While early scholars of religion, such as Emil Durkheim and Bronislaw Malinowski, often characterized ritual and myth as conservative forces working to preserve and transmit existing social codes and structures, the rituals created by Yeats and Crowley subvert commonly accepted social structures and values rather than conserve them. Their rituals exemplify both more recent scholarship on ritual and the evolving role of ritual in society. My note here would be, <clears throat> were not the rituals that they are representing for the Celtic Mysteries and Eleusis indeed uh, conservative of just an older tradition than the contemporary morals and norms of their society. So they are subverting the current conservative morals and norms with older conservative conservations of morals and norms. Just a thought. Yeats's unfinished Order of Celtic Mysteries rituals, circa 1895, and Crowley's Rites of Eleusis, 1910, function as rituals and works of art, 
that questioned the dominant political, social, and religious values of their time. Note here, Yeats's ritual order never received an official title and has variously been called the Order of Celtic Mysteries, the Castle of Heroes, and the Irish Mystical Order. I will refer to the rituals collectively as the Celtic Mysteries. The rituals, while never completed or published, are transcribed in Lucy Shepard Caligari's 1977 dissertation, Yeats's Celtic Mysteries, which is the source for the rituals I cite throughout this essay. The original manuscripts are located in the National Library of Ireland. Crowley's rites of Eleusis were performed in London's Caxton Hall over the course of seven weeks in 1910, and were published in Crowley's periodical, The Equinox, in 1911. The two men met in 1899 as initiates of the Order of the Golden Dawn, where they derived their basic understanding of ritual. As a secret society following the Masonic and Rosicrucian traditions, the Order's teachings involved Hermeticism, Kabbalah, astrology, tarot, alchemy, and ritual magic, including methods of calling upon angels and spirits. She, Dr. Clanton here draws her analysis from the Golden Dawn rituals and the scripts provided in Israel regarding the Golden Dawn. And as we all know, that is a later development, so it doesn't represent the Golden Dawn really well that Yeats and Crowley were in. And it's also worth noting that Yeats was already, uh, had graduated the Golden Dawn and was a member of the Inner Order, where as Crowley was just beginning at that time when they met as a much younger man, I believe 25, and Yeats was 35. So that's worth considering in their dynamic as the young upstart and the more mature poet and well-known scholar that Yeats was. Yeats borrowed much of the structure for his rituals from those of the Golden Dawn, but his process for creating them also involved the Golden Dawn method of focused concentration on symbols. He called upon fellow members of the Golden Dawn, including his uncle, George Polexvin, and his unrequited love, Maud Gon, to use clairvoyance to help him develop the rituals. He explains, I did not wish to compose rites as if for the theater. They must, in their main outline, be the work of invisible hands. Memoirs 124. Crowley also employed a collaborative process in composing his rituals, which arose from a night of impromptu poetry reading and musical performance with his lover, Leila Waddle. She's, of course, the artist who then created the Thoth tarot deck with Crowley. Quote, I read a piece of poetry from one of the great classics, and she replied with a piece of music suggested by my reading. I retorted with another poem. Crowley describes the exchange as resulting in a spiritual enthusiasm. Crowley's Rites of Eleusis, a series of seven ritual plays corresponding with the seven classical planets, grew from this artistic exchange. Rather than entirely original compositions, the rites include borrowings of existing poetry and music and portions of Golden Dawn rituals, combined with the works Crowley had previously written. It would be only fair to note, of course, that Yeats's plays drew from extensive earlier sources as well, namely the myths and stories of Western Ireland and Northern Ireland, the folk tales and such. Yeats's Celtic mysteries and Crowley's rites of Eleusis function as religious rituals that question commonly accepted social codes and political values, which contradicts the role commonly ascribed to myth and ritual by early scholars of religion. According to the theories of French sociologist Emile Durkheim, myth and ritual are essentially inseparable aspects of religion that can only serve to sustain social values. Polish-born anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski adds that myth as a primeval reality 
that is embodied in ritual, morals, and social organization, establishes the pattern and foundation of present-day life. These descriptions of myth and ritual tend towards conservatism and see myth and ritual as legitimating and reifying agents that support the social structure and values of their culture. As classicist Eric Sappo demonstrates, more recent post-structuralist analyses of mythology broaden the definition of myth and ritual, characterizing them as methods of expressing any social ideology. Sappo defines myth as anything which is told, received, and transmitted in the conviction of its social importance. Adam Seligman et al. argue that ritual does not express a coherent ideology, but instead conveys the incongruity between the world of enacted ritual and the participants' experience of lived reality. According to this interdisciplinary team of scholars, ritual seeks to repair the broken world of experience by reiterating a possible or subjunctive reality. As I will demonstrate, the rituals created by Yeats and Crowley do not conserve traditional ideals, but work to undermine or replace what they viewed as the dominant values of their societies by enacting an idealized reality. Crowley's rites directly respond to the repressive social values of Edwardian society and the religion of his family, who are members of an evangelical church called the Plymouth Brethren. Confessions 35. In his autobiography, he decries the sexual repression caused by the current morality that interferes with the legitimate satisfaction of physiological needs. As well as the climate of religious intolerance on which he comments, it is evidently consoling to reflect that the people next door are headed for hell. Against these ostensibly Christian values, he counters, Paganism is wholesome because it faces the facts of life. Confessions 82. Yeats was born into an educated middle-class Anglo-Irish family with strong ties to the Church of Ireland. Yeats was half Catholic, half Protestant or Anglican. However, because of the influence of his father, his upbringing was nonetheless more rational than religious. Yeats claimed to feel very religious, yet deprived of the simple-minded religion of my childhood by the despised rationalist philosophies he had encountered through his father. Autobiographies 115. This critique of scientific materialism is found in both Yeats and Crowley. As Crowley states, the ordinary materialist usually fails to recognize that only spiritual affairs count for anything. Confessions 124. Although Yeats retained his Protestant heritage as a cultural identity, see Foster 84. Now Foster, that's an important reference because Foster is considered the definitive biographer of Yeats who wrote the two-part massive set of biographies. First, uh, The Apprentice Mage, and second, The Arch Poet. And it's highly recommended despite its you know, gaps. He advocated Irish independence from Britain, a cause more widely supported by Catholics than Protestants. In supporting Irish nationalism, he counters both the authority of the British Empire and the position held by many members of his social class. This position was attenuated, however, by his cultural elitism. He believed an independent Ireland should be led by the educated and mostly Protestant upper classes rather than the mostly Catholic working class and peasantry. His ideal, as Irish critic Seamus Dean explains, was the peasant and the aristocrat, kindred in spirit but not in class, united in the great romantic battle against the industrial and utilitarian ethic. As I will show, Yeats's Celtic Mysteries rituals 
both romanticize the Irish peasant and working classes and subvert their conservative religious values by elevating their status within the context of occult rituals. My note here is this is one of the first uh, commentaries on an essay I've done that I, where I have not already read the essay, so I thought it would be fun to explore it together. I'm tempted to share more of my thoughts as I go along, but I don't want to preemptively um, <laughs> defame the scholarship that is going on, but I might take some guesses, so be aware that some of the things I might say might, uh, if I go out on a limb, might well be answered. I'm curious, for instance, to to see if, if uh, this article ends up with the point of, sort of the point of view that uh, gets, sort of is, locks them into their occultism rather than looks at the resuscitation of older traditions. That's something that I think is really interesting. Is this uh, contemporary occultism in the Victorian milieu that is being used, or Edwardian milieu that is being used to subvert the, the contemporary issues of that time, or is... Uh, is the professor here's view that these forms were developed within that occult tradition to uh, act as a foil. That's that's the thought. There you go. <laughs> okay. Oh, the, the chickens and cocks are going crazy today. It's a strange day in COVID land, California. Okay. Oh. Shy, short of... Uh, doing these staying up all night and doing my work all night with quietude i am stuck uh with the volume and the sound outside so thanks folks for listening along with me as i've been doing this podcasting and uh other such things it's it's a fun journey as we're all locked in our rooms for months on end me stuck in a foreign country where i can't work (laughs) all right let's get back to dr clanton this is a very cool essay Yeats began working on his ritual system in 1895, Caligura 9, inspired by the island of Castle Rock near Roscom in Ireland. Actually, I think he saw the castle after he began the Celtic Mysteries uh, Castle of Heroes thing. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. Yeats wrote of the island where a castle had been built in the early 19th century in his autobiographies, quote, I planned a mystical order which should buy or hire the castle, and for ten years to come, my most impassioned thought was a vain attempt to find philosophy and to create ritual for that order. This order seems a natural extension of Yeats's support of Irish nationalism through the Celtic revival. If Ireland were to proclaim its right to independence through its Celtic heritage, language, literature, folklore, and sport, why should it not also revive in some fashion its native spirituality? And my note there is a of course, that is exactly what did happen uh, during and after Yeats's lifetime leading up to the Enya New Age and the Celtic Tiger. In autobiographies, Yeats wrote, Have not all races had their first unity from a mythology that marries them to rock and hill? Interesting. Um, if you read the Franciscan Irish theologian from Cork, Dermot O'Merhu, and his uh, reclaiming spirituality and uh, quantum theology. That's exactly what he looks at being alive and well in Ireland today and having never actually left, even though Yeats might not have detected it in his day. Literary scholar Lucy Caligura asserts that Yeats sought to create a uniquely Irish body of occult knowledge and ritual. Yeats felt that such rituals and myths 
would be more suited for the Irish than those of either the Catholic Church or the Golden Dawn, and sought to create an Irish religion that would appeal to the Irish through symbol, art, and a connection with the land rather than through dogma. He wrote that he wanted to bring again in imaginative life the old sacred place, and found a religion with a secret symbolical relation to these mysteries, doctrine without exhortation and rhetoric. Should not religion hide within the work of art as God is within his world? Memoirs 124. Yeats's Celtic mysteries were not to be a reconstruction of ancient Celtic religion. Ah, there we go. But a new creation as syncretic in its nature as the Golden Dawn, with sources ranging across the spectrum of Western philosophy and occultism. So my note there is, yes, so it, it, this argument is not that Yeats wanted to resuscitate the older forms of the religion to subvert the contemporary, but to create a syncretic new whole, and that I think is fair. Of course, you know, you can't, you can't have this syncretic new creation without this heavy reliance on these ancient stories and, and even the Kabbalah, because Yeats was inter integrating the Irish gods with Kabbalah and all of these things. That's what my first book was on, The Celtic Mysteries of W.B. Yeats. So it's tricky. It's a, you know, academic point, but interesting. The Golden Dawn provided a template for Yeats's rituals, but as his work on the rituals progressed, the more he replaced Golden Dawn symbolism with the Irish myth and folklore that would express his nationalistic ideas. Here we have to note that Yeats and Mathers, originally in the early days of the Golden Dawn, were considering using the Irish and Celtic mythologies instead of the Egyptian. That is a really important point to make. Yeats's Order of Celtic Mysteries in many ways developed because Yeats and Mathers agreed that, that it wasn't suitable for the Golden Dawn and should be put aside and developed separately, which is why Yeats was working with Mathers and Moyna in Paris up beyond 1900, past the schism, and well into the future, on the Celtic Mysteries. His letters with Moyna show that. Um, yeah. Also, they weren't really his nationalistic ideals. They were really Maud Gon's nationalistic ideas, and it he was sort of co-opting them as a way of getting into her, her pants or soul, he might say. This progression is evident in the multiple drafts of each ritual in his notebook. That's a good point. These manuscripts include a series of initiations, organized similarly to the rituals of the Golden Dawn. The first, which corresponds to the Golden Dawn's neophyte ritual, has three versions in varying stages of completion. The first version of this ritual involves only three participants, the candidate for initiation, the teacher or master, and the guide. The second, far more complex version, involves eight officers and the candidate, who is now called the wayfarer. The officers in this version correlate with the similar officers in the corresponding Golden Dawn ritual. The Greek titles used by the Golden Dawn are replaced by names that honor Irish peasant or craftsman culture, herdsman, soldier, mason, weaver, or that define the participants' roles, light bearer, incense burner, water bearer. Despite the new titles, the officers are still similar to those of the Golden Dawn through their roles in the rituals and the implements they use. The note that really should be made here is that a lot of these titles came out of the fictional writings of of Sharp, uh, Fiona MacLeod, that is, a pseudonym for Mr. Sharp. It's worth noting that a lot of the rituals and ideals from those came from those channeled fictional writings by Fiona MacLeod. The subsequent rituals each center around 
one of the four classical elements, earth, air, water, fire. Just as do the four elemental grade rituals of the Golden Dawn. However, instead of linking these elements with their Kabbalistic correspondences as in the Golden Dawn, Yeats ties each to one of the legendary four jewels of the Tuajedanan, the cauldron, water, the stone, earth, the sword, air, and the spear, fire. I have to note here that he also tied them to the Kabbalistic hermeticism of the Golden Dawn as well. They are all integrated in the charts that he drew. Yeats's elemental rituals are also performed in a different order than in the Golden Dawn. Instead of following Kabbalistic order, the Celtic mysteries follow the traditional order of the elements as they correspond with the cardinal directions from west through south. These rituals seem to borrow fewer elements from the Golden Dawn than the previous ones. The officer roles no longer correspond to the Golden Dawn officers. It appears that the longer Yeats and his collaborators worked on creating the Celtic mysteries, the more freed from the Golden Dawn model they became. It's worth noting here that perhaps... Um, some of the rituals that they in fact did correspond to just simply aren't in Regardi's Golden Dawn and known to uh, available to scholarships. So um, that's unfortunate. This divergence allows the rituals greater accord with Yeats's nationalist ideals by placing greater emphasis on Celtic subject matter. A revised version of the first ritual enacts legends about the successive waves of legendary people who fought for and conquered Ireland. An unnamed race, the Formor, the children of Neme, the children of Parhilon, the Tuajidanan, the Firbolg, and the children of Mill. The herdsman compares the wayfarer to the children of Lear, whom in Irish myth were transformed into swans by their evil stepmother. Another point about the traditional following of the directions and the elements makes sense because Ireland itself is divided up into elemental uh, corresponding provinces that is very crucial to the both the archdruid system Yeats developed the the four elemental jewels or weapons of the Tuajedanan, the gods of the and tribes of the goddess Dana and um, the elements like the children of Lear the wayfarer is said to be wandering among the waters and the form of his soul had been broken and he has been put into a strange shape quoted in Caligura 205. Yeats adopts the legend of the waves of conquerors of Ireland and the tale of the children of Lear and recasts these myths to reflect the ideology of the Celtic revival. In the last two versions of the initial ritual of the Celtic mysteries, the officers progressively light and extinguish lamps representing the conquering races of Ireland. They finally vow to protect the flame of the last of the seven lamps, the second version of this ritual also incorporates the traditional Irish symbol of the apple bough, long associated with immortality and used as an emblem of the bards of Ireland. The incense bearer carries blossoming apple boughs and places them upon a white altar next to a lamp of white light. This lamp seems to be significant on two levels. First, as a representative of the current race of people in Ireland, or perhaps all the successive races of Ireland, and second, as representative of spiritual attainment. The placement of the blossoming bough beside it indicates the immortality of the Irish race and the power of beauty and the arts to ensure the spiritual attainment of both the individual initiate and Irish culture as a whole. So one thing that seems to be really missing is um, the fact that though the rituals may focus on the Irish race, the reason Yeats ended up 
definitively naming his order the Order of Celtic Mysteries and not Irish Mysteries, and he did come up with a definitive name for it. I don't know why Dr. Clanton says he didn't, and that was because of his close relationship to Sharp, the, who wrote under as uh, Fiona Shaw. Oops, I mean McLeod. Fiona Shaw was the actress, of course. Fiona McLeod was the pen name of William Sharp, Yeats's inspirational novelist friend who we mentioned earlier. Gosh, I'm making a lot of commentaries on this. This is what happens when I, uh, I'm commentating as I read an artist's essay for the first time. So, enjoy. Where were we? Yeats's inclusion of the children of Lear may also reflect this dual significance, as the children can be seen to represent both the wayfarer and all of Ireland. The use of this myth to communicate political ideology continues into contemporary times, as this story was memorialized in 1971 as a statue in Dublin's Garden of Remembrance. It is a very beautiful statue and worth seeing. Which honors soldiers who died for the Irish cause. According to the tale, the children of Lear were transmuted by their jealous stepmother aunt, who cursed them to live as swans for 900 years, retaining nothing of their humanity but their memories, their voices, and their songs. Lady Gregory, 124-136, for a great copy of these stories. While the story is ancient, the children's plight easily parallels the conditions of Yeats's Ireland. At the time of the ritual's creation, important aspects of Irish culture, including the practice of Catholicism and the Gaelic language, Gaelga, Irish is what it's called actually, had been outlawed or marginalized by the British to varying degrees since the enactment of the first penal laws in the 16th century. Yeats's rituals were conceived as part of a broader movement toward Irish political and cultural independence, like the apple boughs of the bards. The swan children's retention of their voices and songs presents an excellent trope for the Irish literary revival. Yeah, so I think it's just really important to take a note that it ended up as a Celtic revival through Sharp's influence with Yeats. Yeats saw it not, especially as he realized and gave up on his love for Maud Gon that the order had to be a Celtic revival for all six Celtic races, the both the three Gaelic and the three Brythonic, and less of an Irish nationalist thing, which was his aim in younger days when he was trying to seduce Maud Gon into falling in love with him. Yeats's use of ritual to support Irish nationalism is complicated, however, by his social position as a non-Catholic member of the Anglo-Irish middle class. His use of peasant and working class roles for the titles for officiates in his rituals exemplifies the romanticization of the peasant that is common in his work, described by Irish literary scholar Declan Kilbert as the long-suffering mystical peasant. <laughs> While Yeats sympathized with Catholic suffering, he stopped short of advocating substantial political power for the lower classes. Although he supported nationalism and the ideal of a united Ireland, and of course he became one of the first senators, and then his son became a senator as well, he viewed with trepidation the primacy of the Catholic majority that a free Ireland would bring. Therefore, using occult rituals to promote Irish unity both elevates Irish peasants symbolically while simultaneously undercutting their religion. Further, while Yeats did state that the rituals would not be altogether pagan and would incorporate Christian symbolism, Autobiographies 205, when he describes a fictionalized version of his Celtic mysteries in a draft of his unfinished novel, The Speckled Bird, the protagonist declares Christianity itself is coming to an end. 
I think we will give up worshipping one god and worship a great many gods. In his memoirs, he states, I meant to initiate young men and women in this worship, which would unite the radical truths of Christianity to those of a more ancient world. Had Yeats ever completed this project, it is unlikely that many Christians, Catholic or Protestant, nor rationalists like his father would have been amenable to these radical truths. Okay, that's in, that's that's uh, that shows a complete lack of uh, knowledge about how many Catholic priests or Anglican priests, Anglo-Catholic priests, and even bishops were in the Golden Dawn, and how many Christians and Catholics practiced magic in these mystical orders and would have been absolutely amenable to these radical truths. Um, yeah, it's not like he was writing these for some group of hiding of pagans hiding out in the in the in the Irish undergrowth that would spring forth to finally reclaim their ancient resuscitated syncretized religion. Absolutely not. Yeats was completely right in thinking that many Christians, Catholic or Protestant, would jump forward to be a part of some sort of Celtic revival even if it was mainly Irish and nationalistic, because you got to remember the suffering of the troubles that people were going through, the mass murder and destruction, like my family left in 1915 for a very good reason. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Anyway, that's the point that uh, really sticks out saliently to me as, as a false conclusion based on a lack of scholarship. As much as I'm loving Dr. Clanton's work, this is something I would love to talk with her about, about how she came to that conclusion, really. Um, oh, that's just shocking to me. Wow. Well, so, like Yeats, Crowley claimed that his rites of Eleusis were not anti-Christian, but were a new manner of expressing the sublime truths of Christianity. This statement is likely disingenuous, however, as he made it in response to public criticism of his rituals, as with the Celtic mysteries, any Christian ideas expressed by Crowley's rites are too radical or esoteric to be accepted by most Christians. Again here, so to say like the Celtic mysteries that Crowley was disingenuous about um, his rights of Eleusis not being anti-Christian, but were a manner of expressing the sublime truths of Christianity, to say that's disingenuous to, is, is to grossly misunderstand in the most severe of terms both Yeats's and Crowley's appreciation of Christianity and the mysteries of the Rosicrucian tradition that underlies the Golden Dawn that they were both ardently a part of and continued propagating the rest of their lives. Um, this is just gross inaccuracy or either eisegetically read the here the author might be just reading into this idea that they were trying to sneak in paganism into christianity which is absurd because that wouldn't be possible um it was more about showing christians their ancient origins the whole prisca theologia of the neoplatonist movement from the renaissance onward is also uh, very much about this in the resuscitation of hermes trismegistus and the corpus hermeticum it's almost like um it's almost like this uh, article is written with blinders on to the actual breadth of 
knowledge base that Crowley and Yeats were operating out of and the very lengthy tradition their mysticism came from. It's just sort of shocking. Sorry. Wow. So I'm going to read that again. Like Yeats, Crowley claimed that his rites of Eleusis were not anti-Christian, but were a new manner of expressing the sublime truths of Christianity. This statement is likely disingenuous, however, as he made it in response to public criticism of his rituals. As with the Celtic mysteries, any Christian ideas expressed by Crowley's rites are too radical or esoteric to be accepted by most Christians. Instead, the rites profess ideas that subvert the Protestant Christian tradition and Victorian mores in which Crowley was reared. The most obvious is the replacement of Christian rituals with pagan ones. Okay, I have to note that to say that is to misunderstand entirely Christian rituals as being pagan rituals in not only origin but essence. It's just shocking. In fact, the rites question the existence of the Christian God. So Christianity questioned the existence of the Christian God. That's the whole point of Jesus in the this is the whole point of Jesus in Christology oh my God, this is the point of Christological reflection. Wow. Further, the ultimate manner of approaching God involves ecstatic sexual union rather than asceticism and self-denial. <laughs> okay, obviously, yeah, the Christian public was not going to be into that at that time, but today, and what about 50 years from now? Hmm? I think we could definitely see uh, that coming back into uh, mainstream Christianity if it doesn't completely die out with uh, secularism. But Christianity is alive and well, despite what people think. It's just in some shocking forms these days that make Victorian and Edwardian Christianity look like uh, radical liberalism compared to some of the fundamentalism we have today. Moreover, the rites champion a dynamic balance of destructive and creative forces rather than the triumph of absolute good or absolute, over absolute evil. The existence of God is challenged in the rites of Saturn, which flatly proclaims there is no God. At first, the Magister Templi reluctantly declares the absence of God, but after finding the empty altar stands upon it, quoting Thomas Hardy, celebrates atheism. Good tidings of great joy for you, for all. There is no God, no fiend with names divine, made us and tortures us. Crowley seems to deny the existence of the authoritarian God of judgment and sin that he first rebelled against in his youth. Later, in the rite of Mars, Mars recites from Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, To defy power which seems omnipotent is to be good, great, and joyous, beautiful, and free. This is alone life, joy, empire, and victory. The rites either defy or deny an omnipotent God who is seen as a tyrant and proclaim instead an esoteric vision of God, the true God, hidden with whom the aspirant should seek unity rather than offer submission, as does Mars when he declaims, The God and I are one. The ecstatic manner of achieving this unity also defies ascetic Protestant values, when the characters in the rite of Jupiter cannot directly approach the divine source without abandoning their natures and being wholly absorbed. They follow the wisdom of the Sphinx, representing for Crowley divine ecstasy, who advises they invoke the Father, Jupiter, to manifest in the Son. This choice seems to echo Jesus' statement, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But Crowley, in his typically subversive fashion, draws his manifestation of God not from Christianity, but from classical myth, Dionysus. Dionysus also characterizes ecstasy, 
the method for humanity to commune with the divine. Of course, such practices were always alive and well in Christianity from the beginning to the present day. You know, I might point out actually here that one of the greatest failings of academia in the last hundred years has been their wholesale avoidance of theology, which is fine at face value, but it, for any sort of deeper understanding of anything, you can't ignore the cultural myth and prevailing ethos that has governed most of the world, especially the West, for 2,000 years, and that it draws from a tradition, Judaism and other older ancient Near Eastern myths and cults, that defined us up until then. If scholars ignore the actual depth and complexity of theology and the various traditions that interweave to create the breadth of theology, then they're going to have very limited readings of what it's all about and how we understand it, especially when looking at it through the lens of simply Edwardian or Victorian Protestantism. And Protestantism in this context isn't even Protestantism, it's Anglicanism, which is very, very different from Calvinistic or Lutheran Protestantism or the Kirk of, of Scottish Protestantism, which is Calvinistic. The, the Anglo-Irish Catholic Protestantism and High Anglicanism and Low Anglicanism, these are very, very complex and detailed things that had very real lives in different parts and regions of England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, all of those places. The entire cycle of plays promulgates the value of balancing opposing forces. For example, in the rites of Mercury, Mercury is Hermes Trismegistus, renowned as the author of ancient texts of magical wisdom. The probationers in the rite honor him for his wisdom, but when they call him all good, they are corrected by Virgo's declaration that Hermes is not good alone, brethren, but all complete in the perfect equilibrium. And between the light and darkness did he stand. That's taken from the Golden Dawn initiations. The winged heels are fiery with enormous speed, one spurning heaven, the other trampling hell. Thus God should be honored before embodying balance, not only good. The final play, The Rite of Luna, most specifically links enlightenment with sexual ecstasy. Pan attempts to seduce the virgin goddess Artemis, whose silence is a sign of her virginity. The god Pan challenges that her silence equals withholding divine knowledge and decries the disharmony she causes. Silence and speech are at odds. Heaven and hell are at stake. And calls her to reveal us the riddle. Reveal. Bring us the word of the Lord. Artemis submits to his pleas and he tears down the veil, which represents both her virginity and divine mystery, linking sex and spiritual enlightenment. Oh, Mr. Crowley. As with Yeats's Celtic Mysteries, Crowley's rites perform the sociological functions of ritual, but instead of sustaining existing social values, they present transgressive values and undermine what Crowley saw as restrictive Victorian mores. That's already been said. That's said a lot without actually ever giving many examples of what those mores are, as if we should all know, but there's also a variety of them, and then there's the question of interpreting them through a limited perspective that could cause the entire argument to fall apart, especially those of the puritanical religion in which he was raised. Yes. While tame by today's standards, the very depiction of pagan rites violated the conventional values of Crowley's times. In its review of the rites, 
the Looking Glass called Crowley's magical order a blasphemous sect whose proceedings conceivably lend themselves to immorality of the most revolting character, quoted in Brown 22. Exaggerated reports inspired by the sexual imagery of the rites were published by the tabloid press. Well, I wonder if that's why Crowley did them in the first place, eh? Which suggested that the performers were having sex in the dimly lit room, and one reviewer claimed a performer had embraced and kissed him. <laughs> what a to-do. Theatrical performances have often challenged social values, but as rituals, Yeats's and Crowley's works move beyond presenting their ideas to a passive audience to requiring active participation. Awesome. Crowley's audiences may have come expecting avant-garde theater, but Crowley wanted to give them an experience more akin to a religious service. As with many religious rites, portions of the service were hidden from the assembly. The action taking place in a number of the rites is not in full view of the audience. Crowley staged the rites with multiple veils, frequently separating the performers from the audience and delineating sacred spaces or levels of reality that the uninitiated cannot access. Further, Crowley requested that audience members wear nothing, or uh, wear clothing in symbolic colors to each performance. <laughs> That's a Freudian slip, eh? To behave as would be appropriate for the most solemn religious ceremonies, and to observe silence not only as a matter of theater etiquette, but as a manner of obtaining effects. These desired effects involved achieving altered states of consciousness through rhythmic music, repetitive prayer, and hypnotic poetry dim light, veiled action, and flickering flames, incense, and perfumes. Near the beginning of each rite, audience members were presented a cup of libation containing a mixture of fruit juices, alcohol, an infusion of mescal buttons, and either morphine or heroin. Mescal buttons, of course, are peyote. So they were getting high on peyote, maybe, and morphine and heroin, or one of them, or all of them. That sounds like Crowley. And back then, actually, that was not a big deal. Crazy. Similarly, Yeats hoped that his rituals would provide a meaningful spiritual experience for their participants. But unlike Crowley, Yeats intended his rights to have no audience because they weren't theater. Comparing Yeats, Crowley's theater to Yeats's initiations is odd to me because Crowley has initiations. Why not compare Crowley's initiations to Yeats's initiations or Crowley's plays to Yeats's plays, not his Celtic Mysteries initiations? The whole setup for these comparisons seems so skewed as to be hard for me to understand. They both wrote plays and they both wrote initiations, yet here one's initiations are being compared to one's plays with the same set of criteria. It's just so sh uh, uh, confounding. <sighs> Yeats has intended his rights to have no audience. Instead, everyone pre present would be an active participant through the entire process, because it's an initiation, not a play. And Yeats's plays were initiatory, and Yeats Crowley's plays were initiatory, but they weren't their initiations. They're, again, I just got to belabor this point. They were the two of the only people, I think, in any history, let alone recent, that both wrote initiations and for their own orders, and mystical plays that were initiati initiatic in their power, but to compare them across each other rather than to each other is to pair, compare things that are different in kind while applying rules and, and comparisons that require similarity in kind. 
it's it's just it makes no sense and I can say this because this is a PhD so I'm not punching down I'm punching up in fact and I'm not punching I'm this is just you know what academics do and I'm sure dr. Clanton appreciates someone paying this much attention to her work um, it is very good work it just it's it's just a uh, you know, in his instructions for the rituals, Yeats specifies there may be as many members of the order appointed to each office as is convenient, but only one may be present at the ceremony. Indicating that unlike a theatrical performance, there would be no spectators present for the rituals, but only active participants. Yes, because they're rituals, rites, initiations, not theater. Both men saw art and religion as tandem forces. Crowley directly compares the mental state of him who inherits or attains the full consciousness of the artist with the divine consciousness. Quoting Algernon Swinburne, he calls for divine truths to be clothed round by sweet art in order to reignite their vital force. In comparing poetry and religion, Yeats called the laws of art the hidden laws of the world, which can alone bind the imagination and compares the power of the artist with that of the magician. Crowley intended to use the art form of theater to create states of religious ecstasy for his performance and his audience. He compares his ecstasy and intoxication he and Waddle experienced in creating the rites to that experienced by actors performing the mass in Wagner's Parsifal, thus directly linking religious ritual with artistic performance. Similarly, sociologist Robert Bocock links religion and art in Parsifal, but argues that it is not genuinely sacred ritual because it does not involve the use of priests, that is, real sacred figures who can really consecrate the bread and wine in the Mass. Thus, for Bocock, true religious ritual must be performative in a real sense. Its actions must not simply display an experience of the sacred, but actually create such an experience for its participants, who can never act as entirely passive viewers as might the audience of a play. Excellent point. Yeats's Celtic mysteries were never finished or performed. <clears throat> Just wait and see. As his attention turned to writing more traditional plays of the Irish literary theatre, he abandoned the project altogether, perhaps because Gone married another man. Howard, that, that's not true at all. That's just completely not true. And in the dissertation quoted in this essay, it's clear that that's not true because of the constant continuation of those workings with the adepts of the Stella Matutina, Golden Dawn, and Moyne and Mathers in Paris. It's that, that just shows that the text being cited here as reference wasn't even fully read. Wow. Sorry. However, shortly before his death, he told Gon that he wished they had completed the rituals. Had the rituals been finished, his goal was to provide a ritual system of evocation and meditation to reunite the perception of spirit of the divine with natural beauty. Like much of Yeats's work in support of the Celtic revival, the Celtic mysteries sought to use imagery from Irish myth and folklore to support Irish nationalism. Yeah, but more to resuscitate Irish culture and spirituality. As rituals, however, they move beyond presenting unifying nationalist imagery. They additionally provide a venue for nationalist action because Yeats, as an occultist, believed that ritual use of symbols literally had magical effect. Well, Yeats didn't come up with that, did he? He considered symbols the greatest of all powers, with the ability to link individual minds to the greater mind of nature. Further, 
Yeats's rituals would have created another venue for active participation in Irish liberation, not only from British rule, but also from the dominant religions, both Catholic and Protestant. Again, Protestant is used here, for, but it should be Anglican. While Yeats claimed to combine the best of paganism and Christianity, it is likely that had he finished the mysteries and put his rituals into practice, public response would not be would not be any more positive than it was to Crowley's rites of Eleusis a decade later. So, a couple things I got to say about that. There would have been no public response because no public would have seen it. Only members of the initiated order would have seen it. And to say it wouldn't have been more positive than Crowley's rites of Eleusis a decade later, um, well, I've already addressed that, I think, well enough. Let's finish this. Both Yeats and Crowley used what early social scientists considered a conservative medium, ritual, to contravene and attenuate the common values of their societies, because the social values of their rituals express are desired rather than actual. The rituals demonstrate the tension, as described by Seligman, between the subjunctive world of ritual, a world that enacts an unattainable ideal, and the existing social order. Through ritual, Yeats and Crowley are each creating a shared illusory world, which involves participants in contravening the values and social structure of their contemporary society. Again, that is said so many times without any actual detail of a single value or more or structure. Seligman argues, however, that participants in ritual are not necessarily consciously analyzing the incongruities between this, their ritual ideal and their lived reality. Whereas Yeats and Crowley, by intentionally creating rituals as works of art, present these incongruities through conscious choice. It sounds to me like there was an assignment to show writers or, or literature that contradicted social structures of its time, and that the author here looked at Yeats and Crowley, took one's initiations and one's plays, not both's plays or both's initiations, and then use them to drive home that thesis without ever elucidating points of that thesis or doing even complete readings of the very site sources and background writings like Calogera that are referenced in the article itself. This to me is the, unless there's more, and I know this, that Dr. Clanton went on to do her PhD dissertation on this exact subject, which I will read after this um, over the next month. Um, now let's just get through this. This difference may be examined through religious studies scholar Catherine Bell's analysis of the history of scholarship on ritual and the effects of this scholarship has had on the practice of ritual in contemporary society. She argues that the abstract concept of ritual as a cross-cultural phenomenon has been created by the scholars who have studied it, herself included, and their research has in turn affected the way people view ritual. Belief in ritual as a central dynamic in human affairs, as opposed to belief in a particular liturgical tradition, gives ritualists the authority to ritualize creatively and gives legitimacy to invented rites. Mm. This relativistic view of ritual empowers individuals to create or modify rituals while undermining some forms of traditional ritual authority. When the concept of ritual itself becomes authoritative, no longer must ritual be ordained by God or cultural tradition. Hmm. Yeah, let's save my thoughts on that till I read the PhD dissertation. 
One of the earliest scholars Bell lists as responsible for creating the modern concept of ritual is Sir James Fraser, 263, the author of Golden Bough, 1890, who was familiar to both Yeats and Crowley. Crowley's understanding of the history of myth and religion was largely influenced by Fraser, and Yeats himself, a folklorist, compared Fraser with other folklorists he had read. Bell discusses a trend toward espousing the value of individuals revising and creating rituals, but she locates most of this evolution in the late 20th century. Yeats and Crowley, influenced by the cross-cultural view of ritual, are thus early participants in this process of undermining traditional sources of ritual authority. This shift departs from the model they found in the Golden Dawn, whose founders denied responsibility for writing its rituals and instead appealed to a mysterious coded document as a source of occult authority. That's, they totally took credit for writing a lot of the rituals, especially the key ones like the 5-6 initiation, and they, uh, they didn't, what is it, they didn't see, okay, again, this is showing a tremendous ignorance of the actual literature that you can and could have read when this article was written in the Golden Dawn. There was, there's just no attention to actual understanding of Golden Dawn scholarship or ideology, or just Christian theology for that matter, as I've mentioned a couple times. Not to mention the fact that the Golden Dawn rituals were resuscitating earlier forms of rites in the exact same way that Crowley's and Yeats were for the exact same kinds of purposes, which was spiritual transformation. In stark contrast, Yeats and Crowley instead proclaimed themselves as artists best qualified for creating rituals, as artists who created rituals without appealing to any authority beyond their own spiritual inspiration. Yeats and Crowley may be viewed as forerunners of a larger trend. Sure, that's sort of fair, lacking all the points I've already made. In creating occult rituals that express Irish nationalist ideals, Yeats uses ritual to question British political authority and religious sectarianism. While negotiating his complex social position as an Anglo-Irish supporter of Irish independence, Crowley, in a less subtle manner, uses pagan rituals to directly confront conservative religious values and sexual mores. Their rituals, intentionally created as works of art, challenged existing political, religious, and social values while seeking to establish new ones. Except it's referring to them as rituals, but one is a set of plays, public transformative plays, mystery plays, and the other is a set of initiations. Why not compare the two proper things, the initiations or the plays? To cross-compare them is to create problems which are necessarily going to lead you to conclusions that are beyond faulty, even in placing them within the context of their time, socially, politically, and theologically. It's just shockingly bad intellectual work. And I think a last point to make is um, uses pagan rituals to directly confront conservative religious values and challenges. This is just... Oh. oh god they aren't intentionally created as works of art their rituals intentionally created as works of art challenged existing political religious and social values while seeking to establish new ones this is the conclusion, uh, the final sentence of this essay. Their rituals, intentionally created as works of art, challenged existing political blah blah blah, you know, challenged shit to... But it wasn't their rituals. It was their rituals, the, their initiatory, Yeats's initiatory rituals and play, and Th Crowley's public 
mystery plays. There's two things that should not be compared in this context. Compare the things in their proper context. Prepare the OTO AA rituals and initiations with Yeats's Order of Celtic Mysteries rituals. And do that with a good understanding of what the Golden Dawn ones were and that they weren't all drawn from the cipher manuscripts by any shot. And plus the ciphers barely even touched on the structure that they actually became when they were practiced. So yeah, this is this is just I this is I don't know what to say about this, but I am very excited to read the PhD dissertation. It's shocking to me that this essay got published in peer review. Um, let alone the fact that there's never any examples given of the actual values and social mores that any of these things are challenging in any detail. It's just a broad sweeping argument that that Crowley and Yeats's very different constructions, one's plays and one's initiations. Um, didn't fit into their times and were sort of predecessor early pre, uh, you know forerunners of a later on movement again that's not really touched on either so a lot of background without any real serious scholarship of even the work cited in the essay itself to be continued I will uh, excitedly honestly read uh, Dr. Clanton's PhD dissertation and hopefully see if uh, she will agree to come and talk with me about this on my podcast because this would be a really great conversation um, again not, this <laughs> this is an example of academic criticism it is criticism but it's not in the po- in the popular sense of the word this is me looking at I'm an expert in this field and maybe much more so than she is um, when it comes to these two people and their sociopolitical theological background and the traditions leading up to their work. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. We all have our specialties. So that's why I really need to read the PhD dissertation and see where this goes. Because this is a big topic that really shouldn't, can't really be addressed. I mean, if this was to have been addressed like this for in this format as an essay, I would have really zoomed in on some key elements comparing again rituals to rituals and plays to plays not plays to rituals that's the that's the biggest fallacy here that aside from the lack of a hermeneutic placement of each person in their time and symbolic realities yeah and again there's just a gross misunderstanding of the history of ritual as it is created and recreated in the different traditions there isn't just this singular sort of historical tradition like quoting these early uh scholars of psychology and and ritual for who are they malinowski and and emil durkheim i mean to quote them that that would be like me talking about chemistry and citing an uh, 1880 chemistry textbook today it's like what are you doing like great that shows what they understood back then but it doesn't really apply to how our interpretations of even things done back then from the perspective of today that wouldn't make sense at all Cheers. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk